Welcome to Off the Film Path. Here we discuss movies that, for better or for worse, are less known to the general public. Today we are discussing a Netflix movie, 2016's Mindhorn. I'm Kyle. And I'm Sophia. Sophia, before we jump in, I wanted to address something. That mm-hmm. last time you gave your qualifications, that you're a film critic, and I realized that I just said I'm a film enjoyer, but I do, in fact, have the most threadbare of qualifications that I took not one, but two film classes in college. Hey, all right. Yeah. One was called Masculinities in Film. The other was Apocalypse in Film. Well, you know, everybody starts somewhere. And hey, look, those are those are some awesome topics in film. And there's a lot that can be said. Uh, in fact, I'm writing a, uh, a piece right now about the movie Waiting for the Barbarians, which is based on one of my favorite books. And without getting all into the details, it's maybe post-apocalyptic, but it's not really about what happened in the past or what will happen in the future. It, the movie is all about time, and it is beautiful, and I specialize in queer theory, surprising absolutely no one. So there's a surprising amount that could be said about a movie populated almost exclusively by straight people, but... Apocalypse in film is is, uh, is a fairly rich topic. Yeah, uh, we got to watch Snowpiercer as part of that. Oh, fun, yeah. Tech bro capitalism at its finest. Uh, there's a certain genre of movie that's like sci-fi class critique mm-hmm. that that fits in. Also, the more panned film in time, where time is literally money. Okay, so fun fact about that. In Time is very loosely based on a Harlan Ellison short story called Repent Harlequin Said the TikTok Man. I say it's a loose adaptation. It was substantially similar enough that Harlan Ellison sued. And unfortunately, like all the other times that um, Repent Harlequin has been uh, remade and Harlan Ellison has sued, he lost. Oh. Sad, sad story with that guy. But uh, would you recommend reading the story yes absolutely it's only like six pages long and it is very cute um Mm -hmm. and poignant and just a wonderful story nice well we're not here to talk about that no we are not we're here to talk about something that actually um puts me in a bit of a tricky position as a film critic because we're talking about a comedy movie And, you know, as a genre, comedy tends to be either highly satirical, in which case highly political, or analytically arid. Um, And this is kind of straddling the line between the two. How how much do you think of that is that it's a different culture to some degree? Um, Okay, so it is a British movie, and I think that the comedy is certainly influenced by the fact that the culture is different. Americans um, are, while we do have an appreciation for dry humor, it's not our primary mode of humor. This movie is bone dry. Um, <laughs> I, I think I can encapsulate it well, but I oh. need to do a mediocre Rodney Dangerfield impression, if that's all right. Oh, please. I love I love the more mediocre, the better. Go for it. If this movie were any drier, it'd be my wife's cooking. Woo! <laughs> okay, I thought that was going in a completely different direction. 
I had considered that, but there's a lot. Yeah, keep it PG. PG thirteen. <laughs> yeah, we we keep it PG thirteen. So who gets the f bomb in this episode? <laughs> That'll be you. Fuck. All right. Cool. We're done. Yeah. So this. Yeah. This. Uh. I don't think culture plays as much into this movie as it does owning the mistakes of the past. Yeah. And, uh, so I want I want to start off by saying by uh, you know very top level observations. Do you do you have any any like major you know top level revelations about this movie? Not really. I liked it. It's fine. <laughs> There's like hints of depth at certain points, but nothing that really goes deep. But I'm also very bad at digging deeper. I I will. St- I will say that this is probably one of my favorite movies now. Yeah, this was this was an awesome movie. I loved every second of this experience. It was delightfully stupid. Uh, it is also a razor sharp satire of early James Bond, which is very interesting because this movie was made in a world where the Austin Powers movies exist. <laughs> Okay, so Austin Powers was kind of a middle Bond critique. Early Bond. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, the the Connery, like, I don't see a problem with putting Sean Connery in yellow face and, uh, you know, just, you know, all of the bad sex stuff. It, it all kind of, like, comes up. The fact that, like, men of a certain generation did not put a high level of uh, importance in their ability to be flexible and like acrobatics was not a skill that a secret agent okay. uh, necessarily needed. <laughs> yes, I clocked this a bunch of times. <laughs> yeah, I, I I nailed it a couple times too. But yeah, so if you if you go back and watch like the old Sean Connery uh, Bond movies, like you're like, how in the hell is this man a secret agent? We tend to think the same thing about the main character so let's get into it yeah uh actually one quick thing i did feel like this movie a lot of the plot beats were pretty straightforward nothing was like massively unexpected there were some twists and turns but it's like okay i i've seen this type of movie before i kind of understand that this it's not revolutionary uh, but it's still very good no, I gotta tell you, I disagree with that in just one, I have just one counter, or counterexample. That is the last scene. If you, you, you yes. lie to me and say you saw that coming. So I've seen this movie before, so that might be what's influencing it. The first time you saw it. Uh, back in 2016, I, don't ask me to remember that. <laughs> yeah, so, dear listener, I'm addressing you now. Whatever you think the last scene of this movie will be about, you are wrong, and we'll get to it. I have it in my notes that it plays out pretty expectedly, and it's I have that when they do the like phone call scene. Uh huh. We'll get. I mean, we'll get there, but like that part plays out pretty much how you would expect of a comedy. Yeah, it is a very comedic movie, and you know, comedy is the first. Um, one of my favorite critics, Lindsay Ellis, you know, don't at me. She she is, you know, not the first to mention, but the one that comes directly to mind 
when she says comedy is the first to age uh, and the you know the most likely to age poorly. So uh, that this still holds up. You know what are we five years later now? Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Like I'm okay with that, and I can't imagine this will this will continue to age well. There are some ableist themes in it. I think they're handled relatively respectfully, but not all the way. Right. So we open, it's, what do you think, the 1980s? It is 19, I think they said 82. Makes sense. We're on the set of the TV show Mindhorn. This is similar to Six Million Dollar Man, I guess. Yeah, my notes, my notes just have... Yes, your $6 million man contrivance is noted. Thank you. I also wrote Big Hasselhoff Energy. Very much mm-hmm. Knight Rider. Yeah. Though I've not seen that, so maybe I shouldn't make a comparison to something I haven't seen. <laughs> now, having seen Knight Rider? Yeah, no, you're, you're not wrong. There's one other part in this movie that also, like, really screamed Hasselhoff to me, but we'll get there. I'm drawing a blank, but I'm excited to hear... It's not a big thing, and I don't remember exactly where, so why not now? They talk about Richard's career, and they're like, oh, he was a really popular music artist in Eastern Europe. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, my God, that's right. I forgot completely about that. Oh, my God. Okay. So, yeah, we're on the set of Mindhorn, and, you know, we see him, you know, preparing preparing a take with his girlfriend and his stuntman, and... You get the immediate impression that the stuntman, he, well, he's from Holland, so he has a funny accent. It's not a typical Dutch accent, though. Like, it, it, it's discernibly Dutch, but it's also, like, you listen to him, you're like, okay, this guy's a little bit slow. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a take of the show, and then, like, snap way forward. Uh, or, uh, no, that's not, that's not true. There's a montage talking about how big this show is and how Richard Thorncroft, the actor who plays Mindhorn, is a complete ass. Yes. During this montage, I noted two things. Steve Coogan is in this movie, who is yeah. fun. He's a fun guy. I loved the synth music. Mm-hmm. And also, I might be over-exaggerating this, but there, this movie and like a couple others have this sort of weird fascination with capoeira. Okay, we're yeah, we're gonna come back to the capoeira. Yes. I just want to go ahead and say that like back when I was, you know, desperately striving to achieve manhood, I did indulge in capoeira and nothing that happens here is none of the people portrayed in this movie are capable of capoeira. No. But around this same time there was that movie with Will Ferrell called Get Hard. I, you know, I didn't see that. Better than you would expect. Okay. Not great, but better than you'd expect. But he's a rich guy. He's just doing whatever. And he's like, I'm learning capoeira. And it's like, what is this fascination? And I think, I think what it might be is that for decades, movies were like karate, kung fu. And they were like, okay, that's getting a little played out. How can we convey something similar? But that's technically different. So uh, you'll also hear Krav Maga. The uh, Israeli self-defense yeah. and capoeira, the Brazilian, is it fight dancing? Uh, yeah, and I actually have a competing hypothesis on this, which is that it combines two of the 80s biggest 
movie crazes, choreographed fight scenes, and breakdancing. Oh, that that is very interesting. Like if Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo had a fight scene in it, it would almost certainly be Capoeira. I love that movie so much. I've never seen it, but I love it so much for giving us the title convention of Electric Boogaloo. So I actually love it because the guy who produced it, actually, uh, he, he's, he's a schlock film producer. Excellent. And I can't remember his name. It is the most Israeli name in the world. I want to say it's like Eitan something. It doesn't matter. But um, yeah, so he goes on to contract Jean-Luc Godard to make a reimagining of Hamlet. And it is inscrutable. But, like, it's a Jean-Luc Godard film, so I don't know exactly what he was expecting. Knowing that he did Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, does this adaptation of Hamlet have any dance battles? No. Missed opportunity. Moving on. <laughs> back, to, back to Mindhorn. Yeah, back to Mindhorn. They do this montage, and then we cut to a dim, dingy, creepy apartment. <laughs> Yeah, we do. <laughs> it. I noted this as a major tonal shift, and I was like, I love it. I love that we have this wacky uh, montage, and then, boom, we are at... I don't know how to describe this, because it's not the scene of the crime, but it's like the lair. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is very much like any movie with a conspiracy theorist slash potential killer You've seen this guy's place, except there's way more. Well, they use the term plasticine, but we would know it better as Play-Doh. I was wondering about that. Wasn't familiar with the term. Thought it was putty. This is also like yeah. in Seven when they go to John Doe's apartment and it's like yeah, very like obsessive in a certain way. Yeah, it's obsessively researched and, you know, it's implied that uh, the guy who lives there, who goes by the name The Kestrel, real name Paul Metty, has killed a woman and will kill again if he does not get the chance to talk to Detective Mindhorn, who he thinks is real. Uh, we get two nice gags in here. One is showing the fake phone and then finding the real phone. It, it's not that funny, but like it's a bit of a gag. It's cute. It's yeah. cute. And then someone like falls through, trips backwards. It's funny. So the place is, is, you know, what we in the States would probably refer to as a crack shack. So that there is no solid walls shouldn't come as any, like, surprise to anyone. But the junior officer, and I've seen him around before, although I can't for the life of me remember where. I think his name is, like, Dave or something. But uh, he falls through, like, the wall is a little bit papered over and into the next room, which is full of mind-torn memorabilia. This is how they know that he's like very obsessive apart from him just saying it i do love that they realize they have to get richard back and they are so unhappy about having him return to the isle of man during the montage we see him doing a talk show where his whole thing is he stands up on the chair and goes the isle of man is a shithole and everybody's like Boo. he's like what and this will come back, uh, but the Isle of Man uh, is a small island in the Irish Sea between uh, the UK and Ireland. Yes, so now we see Richard. He is 
kind of getting ready for this audition. <laughs> yeah. He has visibly gained weight. A lot of it. Yes, and he is wearing a girdle. We find out later that his career has not been doing well, and part of that sort of not-so-great work is that he did an advertisement for this girdle company. Yep, and uh, and some therapeutic socks. Uh, but he's also lost all of his hair. Yes, he wears a toupee. A very unconvincing toupee. So he goes to the audition place. The person gets his name wrong. He corrects her, goes in, uh, and we have Kenneth Branagh as himself, which is cool. Yeah, love to see it. And it is quickly revealed that the person whose name the receptionist called shows up just after him so that he should not have been there in the first place. So this is actually set up very carefully um, because beyond here be a race joke. So the guy who came in after him is a, uh, a, a black man with a very similar name to uh, Richard. So Richard, you know, just like, hey, Kenny, and goes into the audition room and starts auditioning as a, I don't know if it's a slur, so I'm not going to say it, a man of Jamaican descent uh, with mental illness. So we get the whole thing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, to honor it with uh, any kind of reproduction, reproduction, but it is incredibly offensive. And Kenneth, Kenneth Branagh is just like, uh, wow. Uh, no, that's all we need. Uh, oh my God. I, I don't know, you know what you could possibly add to that. Um, please leave. We find out that Kenneth Branagh has no clue who Richard is. But Richard knows him. Yep. Or, you know, seems to. <laughs> I get the feeling they did work together, but Richard has fallen from grace so much that Kenneth Branagh just wiped it from his memory. Yeah. So, clever but subtle. Uh, as Richard's leaving the audition, uh, he sees the other applicants, realizes there has been a serious miscommunication... <laughs> And then goes to see his agent about it. I did like the payoff of him, like, showing the realization. Because one version of this is he just walks out and that's just a joke for the audience. Yeah. I did like that he had, like, a little awareness of, like, oh, I really stepped in it. Yeah. We go to, uh, we, we kind of jump over to the, the agents, the agency, and we see... This man, okay, his agent is currently seeing a much more famous British film star and just, like, barges in like his thing is way more important. Do you have the name of that person off the top of your head? Oh, it's it's Simon... Uh, is it, like, Gallo or Callow? Simon Callow, that's it. It's Simon, Simon Callow. Yeah, so... I wrote in my notes, I feel like some of this would read better if I were British and knew the cultural touchstones. Well, I mean, you saw Amadeus, right? I did not see Amadeus. You didn't see Amadeus. Well, I don't have three hours to spare to learn fair. about classical music. Well, you don't actually learn all that much about classical music. Beside the point. Uh, but yeah, I think he was Salieri in, in that movie, but I cannot for the life of me recall. But anyway, yes, Simon Callow is... Uh, um, a fairly well-known, like, he's listed as Simon Callow as himself. So, I mean, that tells you that, that you know. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the agent says, 
you are lucky to get any work at this point. She, but she uh, she does it in a way that is just like powdering his ass and in, in like I absolutely could not bear to do it. Like I feel for the agent having to look at this washed up also ran and be like, no, your career is in transition from, you know, a, a young, handsome actor to an older, you know, still very handsome, but in a more... Mm, Yes. Uh, but she lays out that she's been contacted by the police uh, so that Richard can do this thing. Just kind of lays out the basic premise of the movie. And I wrote that it's a pretty solid premise. Hey, a murder suspect wants to talk to a fictional crime solver, we'll call it. Uh, and they, the police have to get the actor who played that character. Mm-hmm. Pretty solid. A little bit cheesy, but... Certainly not the dumbest premise I've heard. Oh. So he goes to the Isle of Man, something he swore he'd never do again. And for some reason, known but to God, all of his friends from his Minehorn days are there. Yeah. On this island with way more sheep than people. Something I saw that could have just been something in the playback, but there seemed to be a section when he's talking with his former publicist, Moncrief. Uh, that seemed like really bad ADR. Um, help me out with that one. Automatic dialogue replacement. It's when they record it afterwards and put it in, in case something got like messed up or whatnot. But it seemed like to not match for a second. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a thing that, that happened. Um, like there was a lot of um, Puckett will fix it and edit in uh in early bond movies which which is why i think this is like a a critique it's one of the reasons i think this is a critique of early bond so that's a thing that they used to do like a lot makes sense the whole thing has a very like it jumps from like modern quality cinematography to like clearly this was done by amateurs in the 1970s well he gets to his hotel room the police tell him Stay put until we come to get you. <laughs> he immediately leaves. Immediately tries to leave through the front door. Has to explain himself to the junior officer. I just, I have him in my notes as Twink. Sure. <laughs> and then climbs out the window and goes along a back way, to which I wrote, he's agile as fuck. <laughs> There is a musical called Holy Musical Batman. It was done by some college students. Very funny. Check it out. That at the very end, Spider-Man shows up for some reason. And it's played <laughs> by a guy who's a little more heavy set. Oh, and no. he does like a role on the stage. And the characters play it completely straight and go, he's agile as fuck. <laughs> so I was reminded oh, here where Richard is doing quote unquote acrobatics. Not exactly. Connery era acrobatics. Yes. I was like, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So at that point, he fucks off to go meet his ex girlfriend, who is now a reporter for the only, uh, the, the island's TV station, Manx TV. Um, and I have here in my notes, uh, he talks like Matt Berry. Also, uh, do they just teach oh. white dudes to talk like that in Rada? That that really tracks. As soon as she showed up, I wrote, she deserves better. Okay, 
another thing that is just like I feel like it's it's a skewering of of early Bond is like in early Bond like he's he's very like physically and sexually domineering and you know that kind of carries over to his his general attitude uh, and his portrayal in the film here everybody 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 is just owning him at every turn <laughs> it is beautiful yes i wrote she savage bless up they do this verbal sparring of sorts he tries to play like oh we'll call that a draw but like no, she dude, you demolished lost. him <laughs> oh god it, um i recognize her too but i can't i can't place a i can't put a name to a face or like tell you where i've seen her before um, but yeah, she's a she's a, a you know a, an actress that I've seen around um, in other movies before. The the person who plays Kestrel we see in we find out in the next scene is this actor Russell Tovey, who's been in some things. Perhaps the most easily recognizable is the BBC Sherlock episode for the Hound of Baskervilles. But I wrote that of course these people look familiar. England only has like twelve actors. <laughs> everyone's in everything <laughs> but yeah no i mean so so for the love of god don't ask me how i know this but british celebrity culture is like extremely incestuous metaphorically uh and like so so yeah like uh people people get like like famous journalists are the children of other famous journalists and like you 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 become prime minister by going to a very nice school and knowing a bunch of rich chums and, and actor like there there is very much a, a class structure still in place in in Britain. Yeesh. Okay, yeah. so now it's time for the phone call. As I wrote, the most important <laughs> phone call. <laughs> this is okay. I have here uh red. Okay, so I have here something called my red eye glow count. So. It's very important. Uh, in the montage, we see uh, Mindhorn. His whole backstory is he got caught in Cyprus during the Cold War and was extraordinarily renditioned to uh, uh, Russia. And they replaced his eye with an eye that can detect lies. Uh, however, it has left about a quarter of his face real messed up so he wears an eye patch that has this red crystal thing in the center of it and it glows sometimes and it's kind of interesting to see where it glows because it glows once in the montage yes uh we bring back the awesome synths we bring back the awesome synths and it is at that point that that might be it oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that might be it actually because every time it glows the synths are playing that's a thing. Yeah. Okay, see, we're doing we're doing some some stuff here in real time now. Yes, <laughs> he explains to the police chief that he wears these shoes and that is very important to his process of getting into character. Yes, he's weirdly obsessed with shoes. Um, I don't know if that is a dick thing. It might be. I straight up think this might be a thing. Just some actors are. Quite Capital L, capital T, like that. <laughs> TM. Yes. Uh, that could be, yeah. I mean, that, that's that's entirely possible. He gets on this call. They're trying to trace it. He decides to... 
be a little more cavalier and ends up jerking the phone in such a way that it like disconnects some equipment, thereby fucking up everything. And then he uh like when he hangs up, he he turns to by the way, okay, in oblivion, uh Tom Cruise's like assigned wife person is this actress plays her in the movie Oblivion. Uh and this is DS, that's Detective Sergeant Baines. Yeah, so as he hangs up the phone, he turns to DS Baines and is like, Oh, did you did you trace the call? She looks at him like her computer is halfway across the room. There's coffee everywhere. She looks at him and is like, no. Like, well, that's very sloppily of you. I thought this was a professional uh, shop or something like that. And puts the phone down and walks out or tries to. The chief prevents him from doing anything cool. Yes. Also, in this exchange with the chief, he says something and I described it as weirdly horny. He constantly talks about maybe having had sex with the chief's wife at some point. Yeah. As the scene ends, or as it's coming to a close, I wrote that I don't know if it was meant to read as goofy, which now talking I absolutely was. Mm. Uh, but it it's a somewhat expected complication. Right. Yeah. So the, the Kestrel... Uh, tells him uh, to meet, uh, tells Mindhorn to meet him at the quarry. And, well, it's the Isle of Man. It's mostly mining. There's a shit ton of quarries about. He didn't get a, uh, because he just absolutely is disconnected from the concept of the Isle of Man. He, he didn't, you know, bother to ask which quarry, which turns out to be a good thing because after some Googling, uh, by Officer Twink, uh, we learn that the quarry is code for a police station in an old episode of Mindhorn. Yes. Also, Mindhorn tries... Mindhorn. Richard tries to say, oh, we used to film in a particular quarry all the time. It's probably that. Right. And so he spent this entire time, by the way, trying to gin up uh, publicity for himself to take credit for this, try to revive what the, the you know corpse of his career. So he thinks he's about to step outside to meet a photographer. What who he actually meets is the Kestrel. Dun dun dun. So are you saying he did this whole thing for the vine? He did this whole thing straight up for the vine. Yeah, he he's a clout chaser. Yes. And who can blame him? Yeah, no no shame. I'm a clout chaser for sure. Kestrel takes him somewhere. It's Isle of Man. It's all just like hills and occasional city. Behind a sign that says Electric Railway. It didn't catch that. Yeah, they uh, they do a kind of a, a swoop around shot of it. Um, yeah. He gets a call from Moncrief, and I realize we didn't say this, and it's pretty important. <laughs> Richard's agent suggests that Moncrief is doing pretty well for himself, that he's got everything handled. Uh, she used the word kosher. Yeah. She called she called it kosher. And like the first thing when you see him, immediately your first thought is pig. That's a pig man. That's a pig man. So kosher's a weird way to put that. Yeah. But we also cut to his side of a phone call when Richard first gets to the aisle. This is jumping back a bit. And he is living in a trailer. Uh, a caravan. Yes. His accent is also goofy. 
It's exceedingly Scottish. I was wondering about that. It is the most Scottish. Um, I I wish I was good enough with accents to to do the rest of this episode in his accent because that would be just a a grade A bit. But I just I can't. Yeah, I said that Richard. Upon finding out that the Kestrel was the one he was with, should he use Capoeira? <laughs> well, to be fair, uh, the Kestrel had a knife. I mean, it turned out it was a stage knife, but he didn't know that at the time, so... That's such a good running joke, is that half of what the Kestrel has <laughs> is this plasticine. Oh, it's amazing. It's such a great bit. I, I, I love bits, and that was a good one. Like, you, you never can tell if, if what the Kestrel hands you is going to be real or just, you know, plasticine. Yep. Uh, Richard, does he get hurt or just, like, pass out? Uh, he, I think he bangs his head on uh, the, uh, the, the electric railway sign. Yes. And so he's in the hospital. We have a quick dream sequence. Something I noted is that he imagines he dreams a world in which he's actually successful. <laughs> and at one point... They have, like, video calling in the way you would on a talk show. Kenneth Branagh, but he's bald. Yeah. Uh, and I thought he looked, like, a, a lot like Ewan McGregor in that instant. He, I can see that. Um, so I have here, his dreams are about reclaiming masculinity. His partner takes him back. His rival loses his hair. He gets his own hair back. He's successful again. And actually important people think he has a shot in politics, which is, like, that's... That's a that's a cultural joke, I think, because oh, like, boy. yeah, it, it's uh, yeah, British politicians are just another fucking breed. Yep, he gets better. He wakes up. He's fine. I said Moncrief is a bum, but still pretty nice. At least <laughs> um, at this point. Yeah, at this point, before before he starts, um, you know, jonesing. Yeah, uh, it's important to it's important to note. That Moncrief is addicted to essentially every single illicit substance on the planet. It it informs a lot of his character. Richard decides he's going to visit uh, his ex. Uh, her name is Patricia. I don't know if we explicitly said that. No, I don't think we did say her name. Yeah, so her name is Patricia. I wrote that this whole thing, he's like near the house and he's on the phone with her and she also sees him. <laughs> Which is very funny. Uh, I wrote, it's very cringy, but also this movie takes every opportunity to take the piss out of Richard. Oh my god, yes it does. And it is just, it's like, when you see the montage, you're like, okay, this dude needs to be taken down a couple pegs. Then you see the rest of the movie, you're like, that might have been a little much, but very funny. We get a reveal when Richard is interrupted by Clive. Clive is his old stuntman. Yes, and I was kind of expecting a, like, slapstick reaction. <laughs> it, it's disbelief, it's pretty genuine, but I thought, like, if you're interrupted while you're on the phone, I expected, like, a jump or, like, a fight-or-flight punch. No, I think, I think... Uh, at this point, Richard's been beaten down so much, he's just like, in, in his mind, his entire calculus is like, yeah, that figures. I don't know, he seems like he's riding pretty high on this phone call. Uh, that's the impression that he's trying to give off to Pat. You know, kind of an, I'm alright without you thing. 
Which, by the way, uh, he walked out on her. So, like, I don't know what he's trying to prove to whom, but... It's the have your cake and eat it thing. He wanted to go to Hollywood. He wanted to get out of the Isle of Man. And he was fine leaving people behind and then realized it's very lonely. So I have here, the Dutch stuntman looks weird and sounds dumb, but is surprisingly mean given his demeanor and he's stooping the love interest. I gotta say, I love the dynamic of like a fairly simple sort of nice person and just a complete bastard. Uh, I I brought uh, up a show I like in the last episode, BoJack Horseman. Mm -hmm. It's the same dynamic between BoJack and Mr. Peanut Butter. Yep, yep. (laughs) We meet Pat's daughter, and I had a note that I thought she was a young Saoirse Ronan that is incorrect. I thought she looked like, oh, what's her name? Um, Arya Stark. Maisie Williams? Maisie Williams. For for just like a split second, I was like, hey, it's Maisie. No, it's not Maisie Williams. I wrote that Clive and Pat were foreshadowed, but also I don't care. <laughs> yep. I, w- I wrote that Clive has kept it tight, uh, whereas Richard has, everyone has aged more gracefully than Richard has. Maybe not Moncrief. Maybe. We see a very brief clip of Moncrief in the montage that sort of establishes everybody's character. And he was a slob beforehand. So, like, he's managed to, on this downward spiral, not get a whole lot worse looking. So, I'd call that a win compared to Richard, who went from honestly kind of schlubby 80s era, you know, middle-aged actor to a walking train wreck. There's an exchange between people. Richard makes up the lie that he was there to get fan mail. So uh, Clive takes him to the garage where they have it, and Clive has the old car from Mindhorn, and does this big (laughs) metaphor. I was like, oh, the car is a metaphor for Pat, and then he pays off that as a joke. Yeah, yeah, so it's like, yeah, when I found her, she was was a wreck, she was falling apart, and, you know, I gave a lot of love and attention, and, uh, you know, she's back to average. And then I bought the car, I'm like, oh god. That was terrible. That was almost Welsh. But yeah, so yeah. Uh, yeah, so he's like, oh yeah, yeah, let me get your fan mail. And like makes this big production out of lifting like, you know, like he's lifting something heavy except it's like a videotape in three letters and he's like, yeah. Do you want me to call the man with a van? <laughs> he just like, does a very good job of this like very flat delivery of the most devastating <laughs> burns. He's <laughs> It's absolutely devastating, but he's like, he's really nice about it. He's like, oh, yeah. Like, at no point was he like, you're an asshole. I hate you. The fuck off my property. He's, he's more like, yeah, so we got the fan mail. Come back into my office. Here you go. <laughs> yeah. Don't read it all at once. Oh, my God. Uh, Richard leaves to go see Peter, right? That's Steve Coogan. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yes, yes. And he had brought flowers for Pat. Clive decides to take those flowers and present them to Pat as if (laughs) they were his idea. And the card accompanying it is quite filthy. I don't remember the exact (laughs) words. And even if I did, I wouldn't want to say them on this. So the card says, and I'm quoting here, time for some pussy. 
Pat calls him the fuck out, and there's a look on Clive's face like he got played so hard. But he rolls with it. He he is better. He's genuinely better at capoeira in a in a metaphorical sense than Richard is in a physical sense. Yes. One last thing I noted about this scene is that when Pat gets in the car to drive away, it's an American style car. It is, uh, and I don't know what that's about, but okay. I normally don't notice that type of thing, so I really wanted to say, like, oh, I noticed something, I noticed something. I don't think it matters. Yeah. So, no, 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 oh, uh, so he goes, he goes to, um... Peter, played by Steve Coogan. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Yeah, uh, and this does not go well. I can't tell if it's satirizing toxic masculinity or just surface level making fun of it. I mean... Yeah, it, it it's it's I guess I'm trying to say is this highbrow or lowbrow satire? That's what I'm getting. I, I think it's highbrow in that, you know, we as the audience know that like none of this needs to happen this way and like you're sitting here with a potentially lucrative business deal on the table, but your male egos are so wounded by a thing that somebody said while almost certainly high on just an Olympic quantity of cocaine in the 80s that you're not going to sign the deal just to see him cry about it. Like, man, you suck at this too, dude. That said, he's keeping it a lot tighter than Richard. Moral of the whole movie, don't be a prick. Yeah. I will say, on the idea of satirizing or not, uh, it kind of falls into that pose law area where... A good enough satire is indistinguishable from genuine sentiment. You know, I I don't I don't think that's necessarily true. I I kind of subscribe to the opposite of that. Like satire has to be extremely clear and focused, lest you miss the point. Like if it's too good that you don't recognize that it's satire. So a great example of this is Starship Troopers. For those of us with brain stems. Starship Troopers is about as razor sharp a uh, a skewering of fascism as you could get, or better yet, American History X. Just could not be a more clear skewering of the idea of neo-Nazism. You know who really likes American History X? Neo-Nazis. Well, the first half. They like the first half. They kind of turn it <laughs> off halfway through. Um, anyway, he, he gets in this argument with Peter because Peter decided to actually do something with his clout from Mindhorn and spin it off into a show about his character called Windjammer. Which was way more successful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what the fuck type of building are they in? That looked to be... I think that was... Um, I think that was Peter's home. It looked like a small country club. Yeah. It, it looked very much like a stately home. There's people just milling about, and it's like, this is your house? This is where you live, and you just have people? Evening attire? It is 2 o'clock in the afternoon, sir. What are you doing? Absolutely ridiculous. So a fistfight ensues, because of course it does. And as is necessary for the telling of the story, Richard sucks at it and punches a woman in the head. He punches at Peter. Peter dodges, because he's not the (laughs) slowest man on earth. And Richard hits a woman. Yeah, and at that point, Richard's like, okay, this is probably not going to get any better for me, and decides to try to duck out with, like, a modicum of grace by, like, 
telling Peter that like everything he has around him is fake. These flowers are fake. Well, I mean, they're real, but like everything else is fake. That was the other thing is a couple times in this movie, in this scene especially, they say that Pat was very, well, say nicely free loving in the 20 years that Richard has been away. Yeah. But they say it in like much cruder ways to yes. quote jeff moncrief slinging it about it goes along with how you've said this is a satirizing of james bond in the connery era but it's still not good to hear no 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 no. it is super gross richard and moncrief have a rave in the, his trailer home <laughs> which is a rave. very funny look yeah i've titled this next section well, 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 if it isn't the consequences <laughs> of my own actions. Yes, yeah, so I have here, um, this is all part of a, a British phenomenon that maybe you've not heard of called the Great British Night Out. I have not heard of this, no. This is a drug and alcohol fuel, just absolute rager. And it, it is it is worth noting, uh, and these are not my own original observations. This is something I know from, you know, I, ha- I consume, you know, enough British media, uh, including a podcast. Trash Future uh, has has a, a spin-off podcast called Britonology, and one of the episodes was about the Great British Night Out. British culture is much more, like, they do a lot more drugs than we do, and it's, like, normalized to a much greater extent. Like, you could talk to pretty much any 30-year-old dude and all tried ecstasy at least a couple of times. Whereas that's fairly rare here. Rough. Uh, he wakes up in a police station to the police chief berating him. I wrote that no movie can depict a mental state outside of sobriety well. I He has like a, this very fuzzy vision in such a way that I'm like, that's not real at all. I don't know. I've been drunk enough that, that I was like, I know what they're going for. Like yeah. you don't, your vision doesn't blur, but your balance blurs such that your vision kind of loses focus. And I get what they're going for. Yeah, my other movies have done it much worse, so I can't yeah. give this too much grief. Oh, I wrote that this is the get hit part of talking shit. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. The police chief, does he attack him? I truly cannot remember it. No, 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 no. He doesn't attack him. He's just like, can I get you an Alka-Seltzer? Yeah, he is like, you've talked shit on this island so much. Get the fuck out of here. Never come back. He's like, if you ever come back here, I'll throw you in jail. And uh, Richard responds like, anyway, you don't have anything on me. He's like, I could put you away for the vandalism alone. Foreshadowing. I don't know if that's exactly foreshadowing, because it pays off immediately. Yeah, it's not. We come outside, and there is a slow pan to a vehicle. I believe it's a police vehicle. No, no, it's it's Clive's vehicle. Just so many dicks. (laughs) So many dicks! I think that's so funny to me. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, as... As we see, like, all of this stuff, we're, we're getting voiceover of uh, Clive filling out a police report detailing exactly what's written on the car, or what's drawn on the car. Uh, and it's like, in Holland, we call this the acorn. In America, we call that a mushroom cap. 
<laughs> but yeah, so as and this is all happening as Richard comes out and on the back door there's there's what is clearly a butthole uh and <laughs> and, and uh clive's like i don't actually know what this is and the cop's like i believe that's an anus he's like no 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 that's not an anus that's a that's a, i can't remember what he says it is then richard comes out he's like oh hey richard maybe you can <laughs> maybe you can settle it for me what is this richard's like i don't know this has nothing to do with me <laughs> i steps step back like you signed it you moron very funny. Everyone's trying to, like, leave, and Richard makes some comment about Pat's daughter being also Clive's kid, and oh, he says, yeah. oh, that's not my kid, and it's clear that Richard thinks that the He's daughter is his. Yeah. Clive quickly clears it up that it's Peter's kid. But not to Richard. Yes, clears it up to uh, Officer Twink. Yes. Uh, I wrote, what a comedy of misunderstandings. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, honestly, uh, this is probably the least funny thing in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, so at this point, Richard is ready to leave the Isle of Man. And while he's waiting on the ferry, he goes through his, like, very small package of fan mail. Also, the agent says that she's dropping him. That's not really relevant, uh, yeah, but it does like, happen. She she does make the comment that I I thought was was very cute. She's like, she's done with his shit, and uh, the way she decides to tell him is, well, you're having another career transition from an unemployed actor to an unemployable actor. You're fired. And it's like, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, well, well. If it isn't the consequences of my own actions. Yes. Uh, he's going through his fan mail. He gets a letter. The first one uh, is saying, Mindhorn, help me on this case. And he throws it away pretty much immediately. Yep. Uh, and then he gets a VHS cassette uh, good tape. Old VHS. So it, it is clearly from the Kestrel. So he goes to the only man in the universe with a working VHF, Jeffrey Moncrief. Yes. And I said, of course there's a twist and a strangely specific detail we see the murder take place it's not super clear who did it but we do get the clue that this person has makes cats on their shoes yeah it is on the on my second run through of this uh, i did notice that like you see the person who is on the video doing the murder you see them before but it's not really it's not really he's not really strongly identified he's the mayor yeah. of uh the isle of man yes so we see him in like news broadcasts and it makes sense to see him so you just kind of like paper over it in your mind yeah i have this note later but it's more relevant here i don't think they did a very good job of setting this up that the mayor was actually the killer yeah, um, they could have done a better job, but honestly, this is the great part about doing comedy. Like, as long as it's funny, it doesn't matter. That's true. So Moncrief says, we can blackmail this person because I need the money. Which <laughs> leads to just like an entire, like he has an entire meltdown about about how his life has been going, which is where we get the uh, the 
I'm living in a fucking caravan. Uh, line. <laughs> also, like, what about your secretary? He looks at a blow-up doll next to him. He's like, that's my fucking secretary! I take a little umbrage with him blaming Richard. Like, yes, it it's terrible that his major client left, but it's been 25 years. Do something. Yeah, at some point you have to own the responsibility for your stuff. Uh, but no one wants to. I wrote that everyone just causes problems for each other. Moncrief causes problems for Richard. Richard causes problems for Moncrief. Richard causes problems for Pat. Richard causes problems for everyone. <laughs> yeah, we could be here all day if we listed them individually. Yes. Himself, especially. Which is something that Peter was very keen to point out to him. So, Richard ends up with what he thinks is the tape, but we see that Moncrief did a switcheroo. Yep, yep. And uh, he, the Kestrel, has taken himself hostage and is threatening to slit his own throat if he is not allowed to speak to Mindhorn. So, as as he's handling this, uh, here I have the note, the evolution of Baines's hotness as the movie goes on is absolutely just like, the word I have here is lesbate, and we'll get into it. So, in the beginning, Baines is, is dressed like, you know, a fairly standard police woman, you know, Given that my last, uh, the last thing I saw her in was Oblivion, she looks a little bit Middle England in this one compared to Oblivion. So a little bit more plain, but, you know, still pleasant to look upon. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at this point in the movie, she is now running around in uh, in motorcycle safety gear, leather jacket, her entire leathers uh, and her helmet. And we'll get to where this goes, you know, not too long. I believe the next part is Moncrief talking to the mayor. It kind of intercuts between this and what the Kestrel's doing. Yeah. Moncrief is talking to the mayor, and I go, "Uh uh-oh, a corrupt politician? Who could have seen that coming? And then it's revealed that he did this because he had an affair and took her out. It's very funny that Moncrief is like, no, I can come out on top in this situation. He is killed because he has no leverage and no protection. Yep. And uh, upon witnessing a police execution, the mayor has what was not at the time prescient, but a, a fairly a critique, let's say. He notes that this is not Brooklyn. This is the Isle of Man. I'm like, dude, Brooklyn is not even where the major... Yeah. But I get what well, you mean. Like, it's not it's not an outer borough. Also made the note, a corrupt cop? Who yeah. could have seen that? Oh my god. Back at the scene with the Kestrel, Richard is going up to, it looks like a Ferris wheel, kind of. I think it's actually a, um, a water, a, a water mill. Makes much more sense. Wrote super fucking agile, because him getting up there is... Yeah, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, he, by the time he gets up there, he is he is about halfway to a heart attack. It's amazing. He has them play the tape. It's the wrong tape. Actually, it's a recording from the rave they had the night before. And like, I have a question. Why did you record that? Why would you record that? He did it for the vine. He did it for the vine. And you know what? It worked, I guess. Like now, now everybody has seen his entire ass. <laughs> metaphorically thank god richard is understandably frustrated and but is trying to like stay fairly polite as opposed to like raging and he goes that was 
a mix-up with my associate, Jeffrey Moncrief, who I will kill. Yeah, maybe don't say that to the uh, the police barricade. Yes, that was very funny of like, this is an idiotic thing to do, but it's done. Yep, 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 yep. I noted here, and I, I'm sorry to uh, jump back a little bit, but during the switcheroo, I had a note here that like everyone, even the crashed out publicist, has more physical prowess than this goober. Capoeira, my lily white ass. I wrote, before they fully get away, I wrote, the escape has been made. They've jumped off a cliff, supposedly to their deaths. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's really nice scenery. Yeah, the Isle of Man is, if nothing else, very scenic. They do a in-memoriam of sorts on Richard, because they yeah. think he's dead. Including his thromby socks. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is where they mentioned that he had music that was big in Eastern Europe, and I so I had such big Hasselhoff energy. Yeah. I wrote, this movie has everything. There's an obsessive fan, there's corruption, there's weird relationship tension between Richard and Pat. And insensitive makeup, as it turns out. <laughs> I could not for the life of me figure out what was happening there. <laughs> so... What happens, Richard is knocked unconscious by the force of hitting the water after a, uh, what appears to be about a 50-foot drop. And that's fair. But as he's, he comes to with the kestrel, poking him with a makeup brush, and he looks for everything in the world like if Donald Trump actually got tan, spray tan, instead of orange. And then because his, his hair fell out, they glued on, or the Kestrel glued on what can only be described as an afro. Yes, it is the pubiest afro I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, it's not great, is what I'm saying. He also, like, glued him into his suit, like, it's very weird. For in, like, his main hideout, he's got a bunch of paraphernalia. I wrote something about Richard has, like, this moment of, like, sort of self-awareness. Of, like, I'm an actor. Stop relying on me. Also, I've, like, hurt people in my life for something. And I go, self-awareness? Not in my mind, Horn. <laughs> they, he decides to follow along with Kestrel's plan. Because even though the videotape proving his innocence is in the hands of the mayor. Mm -hmm. Or, I think, destroyed. Well, probably both. Yeah. Kestrel says he's made a copy because that's what Mindhorn taught him to do. So Richard says he will go along with this plan that they repeatedly refer to as Operation Apocalypse of Justice. Oh my god, okay, so having been in the military for a long, long time, I've heard some stupid-ass operation names in my time. I've never heard anything quite as stupid or as wordy as Apocalypse of Justice. It very much feels like an 80s screenwriter thing, so they nailed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, so for the time, sure. Okay, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you that. I wrote that they do a surprisingly good job in this movie of not dropping ideas or, like, things they've set up. This was brought about because while in the lair, Kestrel shows off this, like, merchandise he has that I think they call it truth powder. Yeah, yeah, the truth powder is, like, that's just, that's just merchandise. That's something we sell to idiots. And by the way, that blinded four kids in, in like, Bristol in 1982. I had to discontinue it. The immediate next scene, 
we see D.S. Baines trying to find Richard, and the Kestrel uses the truth powder to blind her. I was like, oh, that's nice that, like, you're keeping your ideas that you've set up. Which, next evolution of D.S. Baines, uh, her hair is down, and it is shaggy. And, and like, I have to, I have to say, um, I understand that most of the listeners are not lesbians. This is really, really working for me. <laughs> but that, okay. How would you describe it? Because my gut wants to call it a comb over because it's all on one side, but that's not what it's called. No, um, the, the name is escaping me right now because I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually really bad at the lesbian thing. Uh, I'm, but uh, yeah, it's not, it's not a comb over, but yeah, the bulk of her hair is to one side and it's side shaved, but you can't really tell that until the last couple of scenes in the movie the next stage in Baines's evolution. Right now, it just, it looks very shaggy because it's been under a bike helmet and she's pissed off and she's got a gun and she's trying to kill people and it's working for me because <laughs> I am a deeply, fundamentally flawed human being. No, it's a good look. They blinded her. Richard says, the keys are in her motorcycle. Kestrel takes them and throws them into the river that's nearby. <laughs> and goes, hooray! <laughs> she's just like, you could have used that to get away, you burk! Oh god, it killed me. So they go back to Pat because he wants her help. Mm-hmm. However, D.S. Baines, having recovered a little bit, calls Pat because she knows he's going there and says, Pat, Richard's off the shit. He's delusional. Don't trust him. Try and keep him calm and we'll come and get him. Yeah. So one of those really funny... Scenes happen where there's misunderstandings, and you know both parties' perspectives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The police are on their way, so Richard... This is like an emotional scene, and I don't really care to cover it. I just completely blanked. Oh, yeah. So, it was uh, foreshadowed, or, or rather, it was briefly mentioned. It wasn't foreshadowed at all. Uh, it was briefly mentioned that when Richard left... He actually sent Pat several notes explaining why he left that she did not respond to. What we learn in this scene is that she did not receive the notes. Because Clive hid them. Because Clive hid them among his porn. Yeah. Yes. This is where he goes from like a rival to just like independently a piece of shit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he was like this... This uh, put upon extra who who was like sick of the shit of his primary, so it's just like, all right, well now it's you know things have worked out for me, ha ha ha. Remember all those times you made me feel like an asshole. Well, turns out he's just an asshole. Yeah. Then we go to this parade that's happening, and Pat goes to a press conference. Uh, yes, for the uh, the Manx Day parade. Uh, okay, so I actually I have a note about this per okay so we're not there yet so i'll i'll save it for the actual parade so pat goes to this presser for the manx day parade and it's there that she notices that the mayor has manx cat uh or like a a, a, a stylized uh manx cat on his shoe which is something that richard had told her but this was after D.S. Baines had convinced Pat that uh, he was delusional. 
So she was like, okay. Because Richard said, he's got cats on his shoes. Not real cats, false cats. <laughs> because, yeah, it sounds crazy when she's like, oh, he's got cats on his shoes. You're crazy, man. But yeah, so she thinks that it's all him being delusional until she sees the Manx cats on his shoes and starts to believe it. The mayor kind of picks up on the fact that she notices and that she's on to something, she's acting suspiciously, and kind of confronts her about a different thing, but not really a different thing. And then, you know, she splits before the hired muscle can come in and take care of her. Yes. We then go to a this parade that, like, it's Isle of Man, it's on the smaller side, so it's very clear from this. Oh, the announcer could not be having any less enthusiasm for this. Yeah, so I have here the Grand Marshal of the Manx Day Parade. Looks like he's about to self-harm at any moment. He narrates a a uh, gunfight that happens in front of everyone, and his response was, and I, I'm going to try to do the the uh, intonation as well. Great stuff. That's it. And it was, at this point, I turned to my partner who was watching it with me for the second time. I was like, we are all the Grand Marshal of this parade. And my partner isn't real um, up on, uh, like, she doesn't get dry humor all that well. That was the first time during the movie she laughed. So I was like, <laughs> ha Pat comes back with Richard. They get the Mindhorn car, which has someone else in a Mindhorn costume driving it. Okay, so they're getting the Mindhorn car because that's where the, the copy of the evidence is hidden, in the glove compartment of the Mindhorn car. Yes. Once Richard and Pat and the Kestrel have the car, we they are stopped, not by Dia Spains in that moment, though she will come back, but instead by Clive, who <laughs> says something along the lines of, you can have my career, you can have my woman, but don't take my fucking car. And it, it is, okay, so this one is actually right-hand drive. So Richard is behind the wheel. Richard can't drive. Right. And it had been mentioned before, kind of like hinted at in the, um, in the, when they were filming the show in the beginning. And then like, you know, reminded like when Clive and Richard meet up again. And then, so here he comes out and his first words are, I knew you lied about getting your license, you naughty, naughty liar. And <laughs> ooh, that went a little Jamaican, ew. No. I swear, I cannot get that. Dutch is a hard one. Specifically his Dutch. Yeah, his Dutch is really, really hard uh, as an accent. So, yeah, he, he's like, you, you can have my job, you can have my woman, but you can't have my fucking car. And uh, at that point, <laughs> Pat, like, because the, the handbrake was on, so Pat goes full head in his lap to to lower the uh to lower the handbrake and they jolt forward and hit clive like oh it's a good thing he's a stuntman <laughs> clive's on the ground like i wasn't ready ds baines shows up she fires some shots off at him actually no she had shown up and was incapacitated yeah by pat who just like haymakered her from behind amazing Baines is back up, shoots at them as they're driving off. They do a sort of, like, idyllic drive, and then they're at a beach. Okay, this beach is just... This is where the magic of this movie happens. This is where, like, you could say up until this point, you could be like, okay, it's funny, 
but like it's not a funny movie like this is not like mm-hmm. a satirical skewering of anything until this scene folks yeah and this i kind of broke up because it's this is a little longer in this location yeah but initially i first said how did ds baines not make any of her shots but we find out she did kestrel has been shot he's dying and so his dying wish is that well so first richard tells him that uh, his parents would be proud of him and that he's proud of him and he says his his final wish is that somebody clears his name because he's framed for the murder and for mindhorn and pat to get together which is hilarious because pat is like i'm sorry i don't think i can promise and richard looks at him and he's like all right fine I thought this could have used a little bit of music as he's, like, doing his dying scene, and then it came in a little bit later. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, so they did get it, uh, just not where I necessarily would have, but that's neither here nor there. Kestrel dies. Richard closes his eyes the way people do Mm -hmm. sometimes, and he's like, you simpleton, I was only an actor. And he goes, wait, you're not Mindhorn? <laughs> yeah, he wakes up for a second, just like, huh? And then dies. Oh, love the gag of someone who's not quite dead yet. Yeah. Like, I, I would say it's overplayed, but it worked out pretty well this time. They realized, though, that the tape that was in the glove compartment was made of plasticine. No! <laughs> so they're a little bit screwed with a murderous D.S. Baines who has gone full on, okay, final form D.S. Baines with the side shave, like, just present, all of her hair, like, pushed to one side, the bulk is on one side, she's got a gun, she's wearing leather pants, she's pissed off, I am into it. This is the last 15 minutes of the movie, and it takes this long to explain why she's involved at all. Yeah, like, up to this point, you're just like, oh, dirty cop. Well, no, as it turns out, she's the mayor's niece. Uh, which pays off a different joke. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but the joke doesn't actually, like, the punchline doesn't come for a few minutes yet. Yeah. The line that she gives when she kills, I forget if it's Pat or Richard, but it was really cool, and I wish I wrote it. Uh, which one? Your acting's good, but not that good, or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's that's when she kills, because this is the second time... Richard has offered to just pretend like he didn't know about, you know, her killing Moncrief. And she she, she looks like she considered it for a minute. She's like, you're not that good of an actor, Richard. And shoots him. The police show up. She tells them, oh, Richard attacked me and I had to kill him. Yeah, shot Pat and then, then attacked me and I had to take him down. And then once they're all there, Richard pops up because... This was actually Kestrel's toy gun that uh, that he had somehow palmed to uh, Baines. She had a real gun. He knocked it away, and then she grabbed his gun, which was the fake one. Yeah, yeah. So she shot both Pat and Richard with a fake gun, while Richard actually recorded the whole thing on his belt buckle, a little piece of mind horn merchandising. In order to protect herself, D.S. Baines grabs her name is jasmine i don't remember why she's there but whatever and richard says like i'll handle this oh yeah clive is like clive pusses out and then 
Richard's like, stand down, Clive. It's it's time I handled my own stunts. It's time for the Jinga. So Jinga is a capoeira term. Real quick. Yeah. He does now say out loud that he thinks Jasmine is his daughter, and every person the person who breaks it is DS Baines. Oh, yeah. But every person knows that Jasmine is actually Peter's daughter, yeah. and it it's the most nothing payoff. Yeah, that's it's really unfortunate. Like the only the person who gets the biggest kick out of it is Baines, who who goes full on Tilda Swinton for just a second and like <laughs> thought I couldn't get any more lesbian, but there it is. So yeah, so then we get into the best scene in the entire movie. I I, I laughed so hard at this. I thought so I thought I was going to legit pass out. So we go into slow time. Also heavily saturated. Heavily saturated with orange. So you know it's like 70s, 80s. It's like when you think about like a 70s TV show, it's saturated with orange for some reason. We don't know why. I think it's probably just the color of the film back then. Uh, He starts doing the, the, okay, capoeira is essentially a dance that is mildly combative. It's a very strange choice, though, because the point of capoeira is to keep your opponent engaged as long as possible. So, like, as opposed to literally any actual martial art, you don't want to, like, injure the person that you're dancing with. Right. So this is a weird choice. So he's doing this, I will grant you, He's taped into a bodysuit that has not given him the greatest mobility, but I can't imagine he's all that much better at it, you know. No, of course not. So he's he's doing this jinga back and forth, which involves uh so there's there's a couple of different positions that you kind of sway back and forth between and it's it if done properly, it looks natural and and you know, kind of weaving around. He looks like he is the Pillsbury Doughboy, I don't know. It's a lot of, like, sidestepping and then, like, show choir arm blades. Yes, there you go. That's, I am just, I'm sorry, I got about an hour sleep last night, so, you know, perfect podcasting. So, yeah, so Diaz Baines is trying to shoot him, and he's capoeira-ing around the bullets, and this is, this is shown to actually work for some reason, and then... <laughs> I can't remember the line that he gives, but he do, he does like a he does a kick and it's clear that what they did was they got a very short stick, maybe a foot long, stuck a shoe on it and then stuck it through like a pant leg to do this and they just <laughs> kind of like directly in front or in front and underneath the camera just like knocked at um at Baines's gun and <laughs> knocks it out of screen. And I, all right, I have to give, I have to give Baines some credit here because she, she played that extremely well. She played that like it wasn't just the dumbest, funniest thing in the universe. Andrea Riseborough, that's her name. Um, I have to give, uh, I have to give Andrea some credit here because she played that so well. It was amazing. But yeah, so she's disarmed and the cops move in and everybody's like duly impressed. And he's like, I can tell no more lies. I knew that gun was fake. 
And then Officer Twink comes up, pulls the clip out. I was like, no, that's Baines' gun. That was live ammunition. He just passes out. Roll credits. Yeah. I did not love that ending. Like, it didn't feel like a great resolution. So, I'm... I'm going to push back on that a little bit. I think it was That's a, fair. I think it was a, it wasn't like, it wasn't a good ending. It was the best ending that movie could manage. I was kind of expecting that the very like played out him and Pat drive off into the sunset. So I thought there'd be just like two more minutes. <sighs> well, the movie was already, you know, about, you know, 20 minutes too long as it is. Yeah. Overall thoughts. I honestly, I thought it was very enjoyable. Yeah. I don't think this is a sort of revolutionary movie by any means. It's perfectly enjoyable. You're not wasting your time watching it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you are, but like no more than any other comedy. Right. It is a great movie if you like, you want to have a laugh, especially if you are chemically assisted. (laughs) I wrote up that this has a more cohesive story than if, say, it had been a series of sketches, but it does kind of have the feeling of, like, it's a series of sketches happening. Yeah, yeah. This definitely feels like, insofar as Cats has a plot, it kind of... Yeah, I know, weird flex, right? (laughs) Um, Insofar as Cats can be said to have a plot, you can say that, like, you could justifiably make the case that, you know, the washed up has been gets a second chance. We said this was a little analytically arid, at least compared to liberal arts, which was straight up Freudian. Yes, and also the most unsettled thing that even I could recognize, uh, themes and symbolism. The one thing I thought about actually this morning, and I discussed with Sophia uh, before we started recording, was that there's this, there's a bit of symbolism with shoes. Richard, to him, it is very important to wear specific shoes to become Mindhorn, and the killer is revealed because of his shoes. So there's something, I guess, that could be said, there's truth in those, and if I need to force an extrapolation, you could bring in the idea of walking in someone else's shoes, but I don't think that really applies. You know, I'm not sure. And I, when we were discussing this before we started recording, I made the the uh, snide comment that I, you know, I'm wondering if it's a dick thing. But the more I'm thinking about it, the more it kind of holds up. Because, all right, hear me out. There's one other time that shoes are brought up, like as a big plot point, or rather as a uh, as a uh, a thing that matters, and it's during the audition, like. It is clear to anyone who's ever been into an audition that Kenneth Branagh is not smelling what you're stepping in, Richard. And he kind of knows that. And he he's, he brought a change of shoes and was like, can I try it with a different pair of shoes? I can't remember what exactly the, the cut was called, but he's like, yeah, can I try it with a different pair of shoes? And Kenneth's just like, no, 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 no I'll, it's fine. Uh, you know, I, I, we got what we needed. So it does feel very much like he connects shoes with his success because he, he has his mind horn shoes yes. that he uses to get into character as well. So there is kind of a, insofar as success is often conflated with 
you know, a sense of, you know, masculine pride. There is a connection. You could call it a dick thing, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. That's all the analysis you're getting out of me. Do your own fucking yeah. paper. No, that's fine. <laughs> As we do, we have two ratings on the show. The first being just overall enjoyment. What did you think? I really enjoyed it. I'm going to say, you know, I give it four out of five. It doesn't pretend to be something it's not. It's great for what it is. It's it's a solid four out of five. Personally, I'm going seven and a half out of ten. Very similar. Okay. So seven and a half and a nine. Eight. Um, Sorry. Seven and a half and an eight. And then on the scale of obscurity, how far off the path do you think this movie is? So, okay, fun fact about me, one of my close friends lives in the UK, and she'd never heard of it. <laughs> so, but there are some there are some fairly big name actors in it, so I'm going to say it's not all that obscure. I would say it's like middle of the road obscure. What do we do our obscure scale out of 10? Out of 10. I would say 5 or 6. 5 and a half. I was going to go 6. Both for its benefit of being closer to mainstream, but also against it, weirdly, is that it's a Netflix movie. Yeah. So what I've found is that Netflix movies tend to be schlocky trash, and the Netflix series tend to be like the money makers. Yeah. As we wrap up our episode, we end with a favorite segment of mine. The pop culture pop out, where we talk about some piece of pop culture that we're really interested in at the moment. Uh, Sophia, would you like to start this time? I would. I have one that's relevant to my analysis. So, three of my favorite personalities do a podcast called Kill James Bond. That's Abigail Thorne of Philosophy 2, Alice Caldwell Kelly of Trash Future and Well, There's Your Problem podcast. And uh, Devin, I, f- I feel like I should know more about Devin's oeuvre, but I don't. But uh, it's great fun. It's uh, every other week they do a podcast uh, reviewing a different James Bond movie. And that is sort of, you know, how I got, I, that's how I thought about like when I was watching this, I was like, oh, shoot, I need to, I need to mention this to them. See if they, you know, they can like that because they do a, a different movie like as a bonus episode type thing every once in a while i was like this would be fun so yeah kill james bond uh available wherever pods are cast my one for this week since we're talking about netflix movies and we're recording the day of the oscars i wanted to talk briefly about the trial of the chicago seven this is an incredibly acted movie a lot of big names i always go and see who's in it we have Joseph Gordon-Levitt, we have Eddie Redmayne, we have Sasha Baron Cohen, who's up for a Best Supporting Actor for his role. Frank Langella plays the judge. Michael Keaton shows up at one point. It is phenomenally made, but it's also really heart-wrenching to watch at some point because the trial is, they refer to it constantly as a political trial. No, they're not wrong. Yes. And so it's very disheartening to see a courtroom play out in this manner. And it's based on real events, which makes it a little harder to, like, separate from. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, pretty good movie. Would recommend. Sophia, where can people find you online? 
I am currently, my screen name is, I think I'm still, Zippy already screwed up the Omer, at at Hamilcarinina, H-A-M-I-L-C-A-R-E-N-I-N-A. I am also Sophia Helena Maestatreet at, you know, Medium. Uh, I post, uh, I post stuff there. Don't, don't try to find me on Facebook. I will not add you. Where else am I? I'm on YouTube. I did get an extra follower from from my from my plug last week. Or last Amazing. Month. I know. I'm gonna have to start doing YouTube stuff again. Oh my god, I'm gonna have to start doing YouTube stuff again. Uh so um I, I'm also uh Sophia Helena Maester Treat that YouTube. Continue to follow me there for more political fare. I am on Twitter at Kyle the Giggles. My display name is currently Man of Many Names, in part because of Sophia, she has contributed to that. <laughs> and I am on Tumblr at hebrohammer.tumblr.com, which is also the name that associated with the podcast as the owner. Oh, yeah. Before we leave today, though, I want to say that in the show notes, at the very bottom, there's a link where you can record a voice message that we may put in the show. If we start announcing what movies we do next, that could be helpful for uh, a contribution. But I think primarily we're looking to hear other people's pop culture pop-outs. What are you interested in? But with that, uh, thank you for listening. And we will see you, I believe, in two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. Bye. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.